Chapter Two of the Return by Walter de la Mare. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Karina Schultz. Chapter Two. But the coolness and deliberation of his scrutiny had, to a certain extent, calmed Lawford's mind and given him confidence. Hitherto he had met the little difficulties of life only to vanquish them with ease and applause. Now he was standing face to face with the unknown. He burst out laughing, into a long, low, helpless laughter. Then he arose and began to walk softly, swiftly, to and fro across the room, from wall to wall seven paces, and at the fourth that awful, unseen, brightly lit profile passed as swiftly over the tranquil surface of the looking-glass. The power of concentration was gone again. He simply paced on mechanically, listening to a babble of questions, a conflicting medley of answers. But, above all the confusion and turmoil of his brain, as a Botswain's whistle rises above a storm, so sounded that same infinitesimal voice, incessantly repeating another question now. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? And in the midst of this confusion, out of the infinite, as it were, came another sharp tap at the door, and all within sank to utter stillness again. It's nearly half-past eight, Arthur. I can't wait any longer. Lawford cast a last fleeting look into the glass, turned, and confronted the closed door. "'Very well, Sheila. You shall not wait any longer.' He crossed over to the door, and suddenly a swift, crafty idea flashed into his mind. He tapped on the panel. "'Sheila,' he said softly, "'I want you first, before you come in, to get me something out of my old writing-desk in the smoking-room.' here is the key he pushed a tiny key from off the ring he carried beneath the door in the third little drawer from the top on the left side is a letter please don't say anything now it is the letter you wrote me you will remember after i had asked you to marry me you scribbled in the corner under your signature the initials y s o a do you remember they meant you silly old arthur do you remember? Will you please get that letter at once? Arthur, answered the voice from without, empty of all expression. What does all this mean, this mystery, this hopeless nonsense about a silly letter? What has happened? Is this a miserable form of persecution? Are you mad? I refuse to get the letter. Lawford stooped, black and angular against the door. I am not mad. Oh, I am in the deadliest earnest, Sheila. You must get the letter, if only for your own peace of mind. He heard his wife hesitate as she turned. He heard a sob, and once more he waited. I have brought the letter, came the low, toneless voice again. Have you opened it? There was a rustle of paper. Are the letters there underlined three times? Y-S-O-A? The letters are there. And the date of the month is underneath, April 3rd. No one else in the whole world, living or dead, could know of this but ourselves, Sheila. Will you please open the door? No one. 
I suppose not. No one. Then come in. He unlocked the door and opened it. A dark, rather handsome woman, with sleek hair in a silk dress of a dark, rich color, entered. Lawford closed the door, but his face was in shadow. He had still a moment's respite. "'I need not ask you to be patient,' he began quickly. "'If I could possibly have spared you, if there had been anybody in the world to go to—' "'I am in horrible, horrible trouble, Sheila. It is inconceivable.' I said I was sane, so I am, but the fact is, I went out for a walk. It was rather stupid, perhaps, so soon, and I think I was taken ill, or something. My heart, a kind of fit, a nervous fit. Possibly I am a little unstrung, and it's all. It's mainly fancy. But I think, I can't help thinking it has a little distorted, changed my face, everything, Sheila, except, of course, myself. Would you mind looking? He walked slowly, and with face averted, toward the dressing-table. Simply a nervous? <laughs> to make such a fuss? To scare? began his wife, following him. Without a word, he took up the two old china candlesticks, and held them, one in each lank-fingered hand, before his face, and turned. Lawford could see his wife, every tint and curve and line as distinctly as she could see him. Her cheeks never had much color, now her whole face visibly darkened, from pallor to a dusky leaden gray, as she gazed. It was not an illusion, then, not a miserable hallucination. The unbelievable, the inconceivable had happened. He replaced the candles with trembling fingers and sat down. Well, he said, what is it really? What is it really, Sheila? What on earth are we to do? Is the door locked? she whispered. He nodded, with eyes fixed stirlessly on his face. Sheila unsteadily seated herself, a little out of the candlelight, in the shadow. Lawford rose and put the key of the door on his wife's little rosewood prayer-desk at her elbow, and deliberately sat down again. "'You said a fit. Where?' "'I suppose it is—is is it very different, hopeless? You will understand my being—oh, Sheila, what am I to do?' His wife sat perfectly still, watching him with unflinching attention. You gave me to understand. A nervous fit. Where? Lawford took a deep breath and quietly faced her again. In the old churchyard, Witterstone. I was looking at... at the gravestones. A fit? In the old churchyard, Witterstone? You were looking at the gravestones? Lawford shut his mouth. I suppose so. A fit, he said presently. My heart went a little queer, and I sat down and fell into a kind of doze. A stupor, I suppose. I don't remember anything more. And then I woke, like this. How do you know? How do I know what? Like that. He turned slowly toward the looking-glass. Why, here I am. She gazed at him steadily and a hard, incredulous, almost cunning glint came into her wide blue eyes. She took up the key carelessly, 
glanced at it, glanced at him. It has made me, I mean, the first shock, you know, it has made me a little faint. She walked slowly, deliberately to the door and unlocked it. I'll get a little sal volatile. She softly drew out the key, and without once removing her eyes from his face, opened the door and pushed the key noiselessly in on the other side. Please, stay there. I won't be a minute. Lawford's face smiled, a rather desperate, yet for all that, a patient, resolute smile. Oh, yes, of course, he said, almost to himself. I had not foreseen, at least... You must do precisely what you please, Sheila. You were going to lock me in. You will, however, before taking any final step, please think over what it will entail. I did not think you would, after such proof, in this awful trouble, I did not think you would simply disbelieve me, Sheila. Who else is there to help me? You have the letter in your hand. Isn't that sufficient proof? It was overwhelming proof to me. And even I doubted, too, doubted myself. But never mind. Why, I should have dreamed you would believe me, or taken this awful thing differently, I don't know. It's rather awful to have to go on alone. But there, think it over. I shall not stir until I hear the voices. And then, honestly, Sheila, I couldn't face quite that. I'd sooner give up altogether. Any proof you can think of, I will— Oh, God, I cannot bear it. He covered his face with his hands, but in a moment looked up, unmoved once more. Why, for that matter, he added slowly, and, as it were, with infinite pains, a faint, thin smile again stealing into his face. I think, he turned wearily to the glass, I think it's almost an improvement. Something deep in those dark, clear pupils, out of that lean, adventurous face, gleamed back at him, the distant flash of a heliograph, as it were, height to height, flashing courage. He shuddered and shut his eyes. But I would really rather, he added in a quiet, childlike way, I would really rather, Sheila, you left me alone now. His wife stood irresolute. I understand you to explain, she said, that you went out of this house, just your usual self, this afternoon, for a walk, that for some reason you went to Witterstone, to read the tombstones, that you had a heart attack, or, as you said at first, a fit, that you fell into a stupor and came home like, like this? Am I likely to believe all that? Am I likely to believe such a story as that? Whoever you are, whoever you may be, is it likely? I am not in the least afraid. I thought at first it was some silly practical joke. I thought that at first. She paused, but no answer came. Well, I suppose in a civilized country there is a remedy even for a joke as wicked as that. Lawford listened patiently. She is pretending. She is trying me. She is feeling her way, he kept repeating to himself. She knows I am I, but hasn't the courage. Let her talk. I shall leave the door open, Sheila continued. 
I am not, as you no doubt very naturally assumed, I am not going to do anything either senseless or heedless. I am merely going to ask your brother Cecil to come in, if he is at home, and if not, no doubt our old friend Mr. Montgomery would, would help us. Her scrutiny was still and concentrated, like that of a cat above a mouse's hole. Lawford sat crouched together in the candlelight. "'By all means, Sheila,' he said, slowly choosing his words. "'If you think poor old Cecil, who next January will have been three years in his grave, will be of any use in our difficulty, who Mr. Montgomery is,' his voice dropped in utter weariness. "'You did it very well, my dear,' he added softly. Sheila gently closed the door and sat down on the bed. He heard her softly crying. He heard the bed shaken with her sobs, but a slow glance towards the steady candle flames restrained him. He let her cry on alone. When she had become a little more composed, he stood up. "'You have had no dinner,' he managed to blurt out at last. "'You will be faint.' It's useless to talk, even to think, any more tonight. Leave me to myself for a while. Don't look at me any more. Perhaps I can sleep. Perhaps, if I sleep, it will come right again. When the servants are gone up, I will come down. Just let me have some, some medical book or other, and some more candles. Don't think, Sheila. Don't even think. Sheila paid him no attention for a while. "'You tell me not to think,' she began, in a low, almost listless voice. "'Why, I wonder. I am in my right mind. And eat? How can you have the heartlessness to suggest it? You don't seem in the least to realize what you say. You seem to have lost all, all consciousness.' I quite agree. It is useless for me to burden you with my company while you are in your present condition of mind. But you will at least promise me that you won't take any further steps in this awful business. She could not, try as she would, bring herself again to look at him. She rose softly, paused a moment with sidelong eyes, then turned deliberately toward the door. What, what have I done to deserve all this? From behind her, that voice, so extraordinarily like, and yet, in some vague fashion, more arresting, more resonant than her husband's, broke incredibly out once more. "'You will please leave the key, Sheila. I am ill, but I am not yet in the padded room. And please understand, I take no further steps in this awful business until I hear a strange voice in the house.' Sheila paused but the quiet voice rang in her ear, desperately yet convincingly. She took the key out of the lock, placed it on the bed, and with a sigh that was not quite without a hint of relief in its misery, she furtively extinguished the gaslight on the landing and rustled downstairs. She speedily returned. "'I have brought the book,' she said hastily. "'I could only find the one volume. I have said you have taken a fresh chill.' No one will disturb you. Lawford took the book without a word, and once more, with eyes stonily averted, his wife left him to his own company, and that of the face 
in the glass. When completely deserted, Lawford, with fumbling fingers, opened Quain's A Dictionary of Medicine. He had never had much curiosity, and had always hated what he disbelieved, but nonetheless he had heard occasionally of absurd and questionable experiments. He remembered even to have glanced over reports of cases in the newspapers concerning disappearances, loss of memory, dual personality. Cranks. Oh, yes, he thought now, with a sense of cold, humiliating relief. There had been such cases as his before. They were no doubt curable. They must be comparatively common in America, that land of jangled nerves. Possibly bromide, rest, a battery. But Quain, it seemed, shared his prejudices, at least in this edition, or had hidden away all such apocryphal matters beneath technical terms where no sensible man could find it. Besides, he muttered angrily, what's the good of your one volume? He flung it down and strode to the bed and rang the bell. Then, suddenly recollecting himself, he paused and listened. There came a tap on the door. "'Is that you, Sheila?' he called doubtfully. "'No, sir, it's me,' came the answer. "'Oh, don't trouble. I only wanted to speak to your mistress. It's all right.' "'Mrs. Lawford has gone out, sir,' replied the voice. "'Gone out?' "'Yes, sir. She told me not to mention it, but I suppose as you asked—' "'Oh, that's all right. Never mind. I didn't ring.' He stood with face uplifted, thinking— "'Can I do anything, sir?' came the faint, nervous question after a long pause. "'One moment, Ada,' he called in a loud voice. He took out his pocket-book, sat down, and scribbled a little note. He hardly noticed how changed his handwriting was, the clear, round letters, crabbed and irregular. "'Are you there, Ada?' he called. "'I am slipping a note beneath the door. Just draw back the mat. That's it.' "'Take it at once, please, to Mr. Critchett's, and be sure to wait for an answer. "'Then come back direct to me, up here. "'I don't think, Ada, your mistress believes much in Critchett, "'but I have fully explained what I want. "'He has made me up many prescriptions. "'Explain that to his assistant, if he is not there. "'Go at once, and you will be back before she is. "'I should be so very much obliged. "'Tell him, Mr. Arthur Lawford.' The minutes slowly drifted by. He sat quite still in the clear, untroubled light, waiting in the silence of the empty house. And for the first time he was confronted with the cold, incredible horror of his ordeal. Who would believe, who could believe, that behind this strange and awful, yet how simple mask, lay himself? What test, what heaped-up evidence of identity would break it down? It was all a loathsome ignominy. It was utterly absurd. It was... Suddenly, with a kind of ape-like cunning, he deliberately raised a long, lean forefinger and pointed it at the shadowy crystal of the looking-glass. Perhaps he was dead, was really and indeed changed in body, was fated really and indeed to change in soul into that... "'It's that beastly voice again!' Lawford cried out loud, looking vacantly at his upstretched finger. And then, hand and arm, not too willingly, as it were, obeyed, relaxed, and fell to his side. 
"'You must keep a tight hold, old man,' he muttered to himself. "'Once, once you lose yourself, the least symptom of that, the least symptom, and it's all up.' And the fools, the heartless, preposterous fools, had brought him one volume. When on earth was Ada coming back? She was lagging on purpose. She was in the conspiracy, too. Oh, it should be a lesson to Sheila. Oh, if only daylight would come. What are you going to do? To do? To do? He rose once more and paced his silent cage, to and fro, thinking no more, just using his eyes, compelling them to wander from picture to picture, bedpost to bedpost, now counting aloud his footsteps, now humming, only, only to keep himself from thinking. At last he took out a drawer and actually began arranging its medley of contents, ties, letters, studs, concert and theatre programs, all higgledy-piggledy. And in the midst of this childish stratagem he heard a faint sound, as of heavy water trickling from a height. He turned. A thief was in one of the candles. It was guttering out. He would be left in darkness. He turned hastily, without a moment's heed, to call for light, flung the door open, and full in the flare of a lamp, illuminating her pale forehead and astonished face beneath her black straw hat, stood face to face with Ada. With one swift, dexterous movement, he drew the door to after him, looking straight into her almost colorless, steady eyes. Ah, he said instantly, in a high, faint voice, the powder thank you yes mr lawford's powder thank you thank you he must be kept absolutely quiet absolutely mrs lawford is following please tell her that i am here when she returns mr critchett was in then thank you extreme extreme silence please again that knotted melodramatic finger raised itself on high and within that lean cadaverous body the soul of its lodger quailed at this spectral boldness but it was triumphant the maid at once left him and went downstairs he heard faint voices in muffled consultation and in a moment sheila's silks rustled once more on the staircase lawford put down the lamp and watched her deliberately close the door what does this mean she began swiftly i understand that ada tells me a stranger is here giving orders directions who is he where is he you bound yourself on your solemn promise not to stir till i returned you-how can i-how can we get decently through this horrible business if you are so wretchedly indiscreet you sent ada to the chemist's what for what for i say lawford watched his wife with an almost extraneous interest she was certainly extremely interesting from that point of view that very novel point of view it's quite useless he said to get in the least nervous or hysterical i don't care for the darkness just now that was all tell the girl i am a strange doctor dr simon's new partner you are clever at conventionalities sheila invent i said our patient must be kept quiet i really think he must that is all so far as ada is concerned what on earth else are we to say he broke out that for the present to everybody is our only possible story it will give us what we must have time and next where is the second volume of quain i want that 
And next, why have you broken faith with me? Mrs. Lawford sat down. This sudden and baffling outburst had stupefied her. I can't, I can't make head or tail of what you say. And as for having broken faith, as you call it, would any wife, would any sane woman face what you have brought on us? A situation like this, without seeking advice and help? Mr. Bethany will be perfectly discreet, if he thinks discretion desirable. He is the only available friend we have close enough to ask at once. And things of this kind are, I suppose, if anybody's concern, his. It's certain to leak out. Everybody will hear of it. Don't flatter yourself you are going to hush up a thing like this for long. You can't keep living skeletons in a cupboard. You think only of yourself, only of your own misfortune. But who's to know, pray, that you really are my husband? If you are, the sooner I get the vicar on my side, the better for us both. Who in the whole of the parish? I ask you, and you must have the sense left to see that. Who will believe that a respectable man, a gentleman, a churchman, would deliberately go out to seek an afternoon's amusement in a pokey little country churchyard? Why, apart from everything else, that was absolutely mad to start with. Can you really wonder at the result? Probably because she still steadfastly refused to look at him, her memory kept losing its hold on the appalling fact facing them. She realized fully only that she was in a great, unwarrantable, and insurmountable difficulty. But until she actually lifted her eyes for a moment, she had not fully realized what that difficulty was. She got up with a sudden and horrible nausea. One moment, she said. I will see if the servants have gone to bed. That long Saturnine face, behind which Lawford lay in a dull and desperate ambush, smiled. Something partaking of its clay, some reflex ghost of its rather remarkable features, was even a little amused at Sheila. She returned in a moment and stood in profile in the doorway. Will you come down? she remarked distantly. One moment, Sheila, Lawford began miserably. Before we take this irrevocable step, a step I implore you to postpone a while, for what comes, I suppose, may go. What precisely have you told the vicar? I must in fairness know that. In fairness, she began ironically, and suddenly broke off. Her husband had turned the flame of the lamp low down in the vacant room behind them. The corridor was lit obscurely by the chandelier far down in the hall below. A faint, inexplicable dread fell softly and coldly on her heart. "'Have you no trust in me?' she murmured a little bitterly. "'I have simply told him the truth.' They softly descended the stairs, she first, the dark figure following close behind her. End of Chapter 2